Well, welcome to the Coffee House Theology Podcast. This is Wednesday, November 18th. Can't believe we're halfway through November already. Uh, only, get this, including this one, four podcasts to go uh, through the end of the semester, and we will have gone all the way through the Bible, the whole church, and the whole Word in 2020, so we can see the finish line in sight. And last week, we gave you six books. This week, we're just going to give you one, right. uh, the Book of Romans. And so uh, my friend Brian Ball is here with me. I'm Pastor Jay Strother, and we're glad that you are tuning in from wherever you're listening uh, today. So, Brian, would you start us with a word of prayer, get us back up to speed, orient us where we are at in the big story, and then we will dive into this uh, amazing book. Absolutely. Father God, we are thankful. Thankful for your grace, thankful for your Son that saves us, thankful for your Word, Father, that we have this fixed anchor point, Father, to to stand on. And so open our hearts and our minds to your truth today. Uh, Let let us be changed by our encounter with Christ through your Word. And so... uh, um, let the Holy Spirit move and and uh, and enlighten these truths uh, so that we can apply them to our lives and glorify you as we go from here. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So we started in the beginning. We did. We, we started in the beginning. Genesis 1-1. And, and a mere 30, 36 lessons ago, so yeah. we're pretty closing in on probably 47 weeks at this point. Um, but we started off right within the beginning with Genesis, right? Creation, the fall, and the flood. And then we walk through God's covenant people, the patriarchs, the exodus and the covenant, then the promised land, the kings and the prophets, and the exile and the return, mm-hmm. right, where we had some hope. And then there was that great silence. Um, and, and then in Acts 3, right, we see Christ coming, that, that God's true king arrives. And then Christ's ministry and true king manifested his kingdom. And then the Christ's death and resurrection and the deliverance of his people. And we continue in scene four today, right, where the Christ church and God's people advance the kingdom. And so what we've been looking at right from Acts and then several letters last week and then Romans, we're, we're seeing the gospel, how it advanced. And what's really cool is Ro- Romans almost as a parallel to Acts, where Acts was a historical historical record. Right. Romans is really his theo- Paul's theological treatise, right? Yeah. Acts was written by Luke, kind of told his story. Romans written by Paul is kind of the theological landscape. And the letters fit pretty neatly right into this matured theology. Yeah, so if you're following the chronological reading plan, that's one of the things that becomes really interesting is you're kind of pinging back and forth between the narrative of the Old Testament or the New Testament church as it grows and seeing these letters right. uh, that were written to real people facing real challenges. Uh, and, and one of the, the cool observations is is that last week, Brian, you, you walked us through Galatians, right. uh, probably the earliest of the New Testament letters that was written. Well, a lot of scholars have noted the parallels between the theological themes in Galatians and Romans. Right. So you have a roughly 20, 25 period where you really see Paul kind of hone and develop, uh, tighten and clarify his theology. And so Romans is really his magnum opus in so many different ways. Well, and you also see a maturing of Paul. Right, not just his theology, but as a person, because there's some pretty brash language <laughs> yeah. in Galatians, right? Yeah, and we and we see some of that brashness tuned back, and yeah. you'll see that, right? And in, in, you'll see that in ministers and in, in, in those of us that follow Christ, there's some rough edges the Lord will will hone off for us, and you see a, a almost and certainly not gentle as a dominant characteristic, but you see a gentleness in Paul, right? Yeah. As as one well, of that strength fruit, the fruit. under control, right? Exactly. That's what that New Testament word gentleness means, exactly. And, and that's 
that's meekness, right? Yeah, a meekness you see that harnessed you know, a little bit more. And that's what's so cool is that power, right? That power that you see throttled, mm-hmm. right, in Romans. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I love that the Holy Spirit inspired both of those books, to be clear, right? Right. Uh, and so it's not progressive theology. Right. Like Paul, Paul is very sound in what he writes, but but you do see him, the, the Spirit, working through his personality as he matures and sanctifies in, in Christ. So good yeah. word. So w- one of the things I quote that I love oh, every time we, we jump into Romans was uh, from, from the, the famed New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce. He says, there is no saying what might happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You have been warned. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, and so as we'll kind of conclude with this, this book, uh, this letter has impacted, um, you know, lives it's impacted, uh, church history. And I would argue it's impacted history itself, uh, as, as we will see. And so the book of Romans, incredibly important, uh, to, to new Testament Christianity. And, you know, Brian, when I disciple guys, uh, this is one of the books we spend a long time in because the reality is, is there is a lot. And, and we see in the new Testament, it's been that way since the beginning, a lot of gospel confusion. There's always, false teaching. There is always the the crowd that wants to take Jesus and try to either take something away that he taught or try to add to, right? Uh, and so so Romans really helps us clarify the gospel. And, you know, you have an, kind of an engineering mathematical mind as well as you have a creative part to your, of course, to your personality as well. But, but Romans, right, lays itself out in this logical, you know, almost lawyer-esque pattern uh, that, you know, engineers and, and people who really love to think logically can get their mind around. Well, what I've always thought of it is it's almost like aligning the tires on your car, right? However, you're kind of a little bit out of balance or it's wearing on something. Romans is a fantastic calibration of your theology. And so, and and it does a good job of, even if you're a little bit out of line, Paul nudges you back in line. (laughs) And and that's what's so cool about, I love what you said, like the structure and the format that he presents it It has that effect of of aligning everything in your theology toward Christ. And and we all skew, right? We we roll along just like your car, right? You roll along and it gets a little bit out of alignment and something here. But when you go back through Romans, it puts everything back straight, how it all builds on each other, how it all relates to each other, and then practically how it works in our lives. Right, yeah. that's what's so beautiful about this this text. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, with that, let's uh, let's uh, get in the background because we could just sit here and get, you know <laughs> just just basically have our fan club about <laughs> Romans all all day long. But we want to give you some helpful handles. Uh, a couple things uh, in the handout this week. There's a map and there's a chart that might be helpful to you. Uh, pulled from the last time we preached all the way through the Book of Romans several years ago, and so I pulled that stuff into to this handout. So if you're not getting those, just email us info at stationhillchurch.com. We'll be sure you're on the distribution list to get the. Handout. Handout uh, if you were a podcast listener only. So background, of course, who wrote this? The Apostle Paul. Uh, what's interesting is he dictated this letter. Chapter right. 16 tells that. So uh, he had a scribe named Tertius. And so I just imagine this poor guy trying to, you know, with pen and quill, right? A quill and, and parchment trying to keep up with Paul as he is just, because, you know, Paul's a preacher. He's just going. Uh, like I watch some of you try to take notes when I get rolling on Sunday mornings, you know, it's hard to keep up with. But uh, Paul is writing uh, in a seaport, uh, this near Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey, uh, probably right about after the writing of 2 Corinthians. Uh, He's finished an important stage of his missionary work, and I think this is kind of important. From Jerusalem, he's gone all the way around 
and he says he's fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Uh, and so this geography includes all the churches he had planted on his mission journeys. That's Acts 13 through 20 in South Galatia and in the Roman provinces of Asia, places like Ephesus, Macedonia. Uh, that's kind of northern Greece and Achaia, which is, is Corinth. So uh, the important thing there, I think, is this idea that Paul is ready for his next challenge. This is kind of a pause for him. And it's also important to remember that Paul needed some seasons to sit back and reflect on what the Holy Spirit was doing to clarify his thoughts. And so even in those seasons in which we might feel a little less active, the Holy Spirit is working in a unique way. Well, and we in that seasonality, I, I don't think we take ministry in seasons very well. We think we're always supposed to be harvesting. Right. We're always Great during, point. And, there's, yeah. and there's so much more to it that gets us there. And winter has its purpose. You know, one of the ways you can kind of look at what COVID has done has put us in a winter. Yep. But winter has a purpose, yep. right? So that the spring may come and, and beautiful new things can grow. Yeah. And this is kind of Paul in, in winter, yeah. right? And, and looking back on what the previous season and the season to come. That's right. And so he, he's planning to eventually go back to Jerusalem to bring a collection for the, the church there. Uh, you know, again, healing some of that Jew-Gentile divide. Uh, but he, he has his, set, his sights set and his heart really, really focused on, on new territory. Uh, Spain, what we now know as Spain, uh, and, and for for the Roman world, that that was the ends of the earth right. that Jesus talked about in Acts one eight. You know, that was as far as you could go to the west. And so, um, if you look at the map that I've put included, you know, Paul has has really saturated the gospel in in what we would you know call the the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Well, now from Rome onward, like he he wants the gospel to go, and so that's his goal. And so I love what Douglas Moo says in the NIV Application Commentary. He says what's most significant for our understanding of Romans is the sense that Paul gives us if he's reached this important transition point in his missionary career. He's been preaching the gospel for t- almost 25 years. Wow. He's planted thriving churches over much of the northeastern Mediterranean part of the empire. He's hammered out his theology on the anvil of pastoral problems and debates with opposing factions. So he wrote, writes Romans during a lull in his ministry at a time when he can reflect on what he's come to believe and what it may mean for the church. Again, that, that maturity that's come from, you know, seeing the Holy Spirit do incredible things to dealing with the daily struggles of the churches. Like, you know, if you've ever been around somebody who's been in ministry for a long time, man, they just have such clarity and wisdom. I mean, you could just sit under these guys for, for days, right, and just just hear them go, you know. And, and, and Paul is very much at that stage of his career. And, and it would be easy, honestly, at this point for him to say, you know what, it's been a good run. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chill out. I'm going to kick back here. by a seaport yeah. somewhere, yeah. And, and I'm going to just, you know, uh, count my achievements and, you know, write a couple books and, you know, kind of. But, but his, his desire, again, is to see the gospel go forward. Well, and I love that it was forged in some of the debates. I love in that sure. quote, right? Because we sometimes we think what we're supposed to do when we're debating, you know, someone who who doesn't believe is to is to you know, win them over or persuade, but oftentimes it's it clarifies in me. That's I know so when good. I'm in those debates, yeah. it clarifies in me why do I believe what I believe? That's good. Because yeah. when you're dealing with particularly with quick uh, intellectual articulate minds, you know, they can come up with perspectives where you're like, "Wow, yeah. I've never looked at, at Jesus like that. And the truth is unassailable, right? That was kind of our theme for right. the summer before last in our home, right? The truth is 
isn't scared of those questions. Right. And we know Paul has that same confidence in the truth. So yeah. what it makes you do is go back and, okay, how am I not understanding the truth That's good. in this light? Yeah, it's and refined I, I him it. as well. Exactly. You know, and, and it does the same for us. And that's exactly. why every time we read it, every time we get to declare the gospel, you know, as you, you've used this term, Brian, it makes us more sure, yeah. more confident in what we believe. And, and Paul has that confidence that the gospel indeed can overcome these barriers. And so Chuck Swindoll says, Paul's encounter with the risen Christ transformed him. His future lay not in Jerusalem and works of the law, but out among the Gentiles preaching grace and living by faith. Instead of stamping out Christianity, he would become a tireless apostle, traveling more than 20,000 miles, right, before frequent fire miles were a thing, right, between Jerusalem and Rome and proclaiming the gospel wherever ears to, to ears that had never heard it. Then near the end of his third missionary journey, after what many would consider a full life in ministry, he looked westward to the frontier beyond Rome. And so he wants to shore up the, the Roman church's understanding of the gospel because he really believes that that can be the launching pad, you know, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so so what this is, of course, is it's an epistle, it's a letter, it's a blend of addressing specific issues, but he really has broader application in mind. Uh, treatise uh, is the word that's used sometimes to describe this by, by scholars, where he addresses basic theological issues against the backdrop of early Christianity with reference to some of the specific challenges of Rome. Again, Paul Paul's theology is always rooted in the real world, right. and the real world right, is always, you know, Paul's kind of reading our mail and helping us answer questions of how we apply theology to our real lives. Um, some call this occasional theology, uh, not because we should occasionally think about it, right, but because that's as opposed to a systematic theology. Um, and so it, it, what Paul is doing is he's focusing on issues that are relevant to that time and place. It's for this occasion, and we need to keep that in mind. So again, as we mentioned, approximately AD 57 at the end of Paul's third mission journey, uh, we get that there from the tail end of, of, of Romans and as well from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Again, there's a chart if you want to kind of keep Paul's timeline straight in the handout that might help you, and where, of course, he's writing to the church at Rome. It's interesting because Acts doesn't tell us exactly how the Roman church got started. Right. Um, but Acts 2.10 tells us that there were residents of Rome there at Pentecost. And I think good old Luke, the historian, <laughs> part of what he was documenting was to say, hey, that was the seedbed of the Roman church. Right. Some of those people took the gospel back to the heart of the empire uh, and were among those 3,000 converts. So something interesting had happened right at the, the, the midpoint of the first century uh, in AD 49. Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome over arguments about Crestus. And so scholars think that that was about Jesus Christ, meaning that the leadership of the Roman church changed overnight. So people like Aquila and Priscilla, we see in Acts 18, right, had to leave because they had Jewish roots. And so all of a sudden you had a, just a Gentile leadership in place in the Roman church. And so eight years later, the Jews have been allowed to return. But of course, this brings with it some tension, right? right. Hey, we've been doing this without you for eight years. We kind of have it. You were leaders before, but now you're back. Just that typical, you know, human interaction. So Paul really wants to connect the church and encourage the body towards greater unity. And he knows the best way to do that is to drive us to mission. That's right. You know, it's interesting because in the church, Brian, we talk about the value of biblical community all the time. Uh, and what, what I've discovered over the years is the greatest biblical community comes when you live on mission for the gospel together, right. not when you're just trying to like have a great group. 
Right. Well, and that's what's and that's what's fascinating about about the sixteenth chapter, right? He has all these in a church he's never been to. Yeah. He addresses all these people, Mm -hmm. but think about because he served with right, and each of those aren't people that he like you know, and they wrote this great book or right, right, boy, they can swim fast. He was look at what they've done for the gospel, right? Look at what they've done on mission for the Lord, and that's because, like you say, that's what unifies us as a body is is the is this Holy Spirit in us enabling us to do things for the kingdom. And that, and he has a personal list of people that he's done that with in common with a church he's never been to. Yeah, it is remarkable. How spectacular is that? Yeah, it's remarkable. And so he really wants to forge these people together right. around unified mission. And he knows the gospel has a power to unite that nothing else in the world does. Absolutely. And so he's going to focus on that. So, you know, how does he do it? Well, Paul uses kind of every tool in his rhetorical toolkit in, in this book. Uh, and so, you know, Romans thrills some people, you know, but it flat out intimidates others, yeah. uh, you know. And so, so there, there's a few clues that might help you as you read the book to understand, um, you know, some of the, the things that Paul's employing here in the context of the ancient world and, and rhetoric and writing and the way that they went about things. One is the use of what's called the diatribe. That's imagine Paul having a, an argument or an intense conversation with someone else. Right. And so, you know, that was very common. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Middle East today, that's part of the way they do things is they, you, you think people hate each other the way they talk to each other, but no, that they just, they're animated in their conversation. So Paul plays kind of that imaginary game of imagining, okay, you're going to ask this question, you're going to ask this question, and he forcibly answers it. And so when, when you see the back and forth, almost like a lawyer, you know, it's lawyers battling out a court case, you know, imagine that as you hear Paul's, Paul's arguments. Well, this is how Benjamin and I communicate, my oldest son. <laughs> sure. I mean, we have, and we get intensive enough that Rachel will leave the room. Yeah. Because but it's never personal. Right. It's we're pitting yeah. ideas against yeah. each it's other. It's not contentious. That's right. It, it, but but and we get passionate and yeah. we get but it but and sometimes we argue positions we don't believe because we want to understand if I were arguing that position how would I do it? So when we argue against it we're more effective. Yeah. Yeah. And so we both will take up positions we don't believe but and what you see in Paul right is many of the chapters open with a question right. that nobody asked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that but that's that that's yeah. that method. He has of kind of an Imaginary muse that he is, he is, you know, and, and maybe some of the again legitimate questions have been asked, but he's weaving them together, exactly, you know, to build his case. The other one is logic. Yeah. Um, you know, he he follows a logical sequence of ideas. So one of the things that we'll see in kind of the outline that that I, I pulled together after preaching this is just the, the the building of that. It's really beautiful to kind of a crescendo. Um, and so you know, but but you you also you know need to pay attention to to the way that that Paul's Paul's writing works in the sense that you know, for example, even though the role of the Holy Spirit is and examine thoroughly until chapter seven and eight. Don't assume that Paul doesn't think the spirits at work throughout the process. Right. You know, keep that in mind. And then the other neat thing about this is what I would call, you know, the vertical and horizontal theology that we've already alluded to. You know, that, that Paul's theology, you know, being rightly related to God, rightly understanding the gospel was critically important, but he he never just spends all day in the ivory tower. Right. Like he applies it to to the world around us. And then there's this cascading effect. And so I think the most effective way to read Paul is to imagine yourself in a conversation with somebody who's just passionate and brilliant, you know, all at the same time, the kind of person that you can talk to for hours. And then you're just like, where did that four hours go? You know? So inspired by the spirit, his thoughts are carrying him from one point to the next, to the next, to the next. And again, I just imagine his his poor scribe, like trying to keep up, you know, and especially when he knows, man, the Holy Spirit's speaking through Paul. Like I got, I got to do this, you know, Uh, it's something else. But, you know, we always want to ask the question why. 
And what I love is really, and this kind of leads us right into examining the book a little bit, is that we don't have to go far because of the way Paul laid it out. It's right there in in chapter one, uh, the reasons why, his key reasons why. So reason number one is to proclaim the good news. And so he begins with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning the Son who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he's still not done, right? right? <laughs> Those that, Paul was king of the run-on sentence, you know, because there's so much there. But you just get this idea that, man, his heart is full and he's ready to go, you know. And so he introduces them. And in those first few verses, I love this. He says, uh, you know, through who we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the first reason is really to proclaim the good news, right? This key theme of Romans is this word gospel, which means good news. And F.F. Bruce says Romans is a sustained and coherent statement of the gospel. So sometimes we have to be careful because in an attempt to evangelize and give people handles of the gospel, we're, we're tempted sometimes to oversimplify it. And so I remind people a lot, you know, like go go back to Romans, you know, um, I'll mention the Romans road in a moment. We like to use that in evangelism and I, I think it's effective. I've watched the Holy Spirit use it, but we do have to be careful to disciple people to go back through the depths of that because really the, the contours and the shape and the depth and the hard edges of the gospel that Paul presents in Romans, we need to be careful that, that we, we basically give people the full gospel, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus says, let them count the cost before you follow me. Yeah. And if you don't give them a full appreciation for what the gospel is and what it means, right, you can bring people in and, you know, there's a marketing slogan that says people come in by, or people stay for what brought them in. Yes. And so you need to be careful that it is a true gospel that brings them in because when that false gospel fails, which all false gospels will fail. That's right. They will fall away. That's right. What you attract them with, you have to keep them with. That's right. So you better be sure that they're being drawn by the, the whole gospel, gospel right. of That's Jesus exactly Christ. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of scholars think those verses three and four that I just read is maybe taken from a quote from a popular early hymn or creed about Jesus. Um, but it's just gospel saturated, right? Yeah. The parallelism in the Greek, the origin of the gospel is God. The gospel is God's promises and scripture fulfilled. The substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The scope of the gospel is all nations. Yep. The purpose of the gospel is the obedience of faith and the goal of the gospel is the honor of Christ's name. Yeah. And I share that just yeah. to say, I mean, literally you can just take two verses of Romans and come up with a six point outline. I mean, there's so much density, I would right. say, you know, there, you, you could just spend so much time studying this as, as people have. And so, you know, the, this, the, the big contours, the big parts of the gospel, God, man, Christ response is, yeah. is at the heart of Romans and we should never get over it. And we can only allow God to take us deeper into it. Amen. And it's why no matter how many times you've read this letter, you should read and study it again. Cause as you said, it realigns our hearts every time. The second reason it was written, right, was to not only proclaim the gospel, but to fulfill Paul's calling as a slave of Jesus Christ, a word he uses intentionally, and as an apostle, the chosen instrument who had been set apart for God's purposes. So Paul really sees this as a part of his calling. The third reason, of course, was to strengthen the church. Uh, to confirm their understanding of the gospel and to clarify what might have been confusing, uh, to affirm the authenticity of their faith and, and to commend them for their obedience, but also to cast a vision for the future and to urge them to become Paul's partner in fulfilling the Great Commission. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that's important too. You know, again, Paul is writing this to a church. Don't forget that. 
Well, and that's what's important, like when, 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 when we hear preaching, right? It should not just increase your understanding, but call you to action. That's right. Right, as we've talked about, right, in Hebrew, to hear and not do is not to hear. Yeah. And it's the same thing here, same thing here literally, right, is that they, he calls on them not just to hear, but these are the things we're going to do. And he, like you say, as you think about Rome as the crossroads of the world at this time, certainly the most powerful city you know, any, anywhere known, everything, all roads lead to Rome, yeah. which means all lo- roads lead from Rome. That's exactly right. And yeah, so, Paul knows if the gospel can take root in Rome, right, it, it will spread throughout the world, you know, even in it, with an intensity, you know, that it hasn't to this point. Right. And so, you know, preparing for mission, that's that, yeah. that fourth reason, really. And then fifth, to, to declare the power of the gospel. Um, and I want to sit on this for just a second because these, these verses are important and are really that the first part. And where, when I share the Romans road, I like to start is verses 14 through 16. So Paul says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians or outsiders, right? Both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. So, so Paul says, I'm under obligation. Like he has this calling, this sense of this is what God put me here to do. And, and I think that's so important for us to grasp, right? That, that God has allowed us to be conduits of the gospel. And so Paul's not saying I'm under obligation in the sense of, right, I'm like I'm being forced to do this, like I'm a robot. But instead he says, I, this is such a calling for me that, that I'm going to do this no matter the cost. Right. I mean, it, it, the Holy Spirit compels us, right? When I've, when I've thought word. about that obligation, it's because the Holy Spirit, there's just things that are that are irresistible, I guess, is almost the, the point of yeah. that word, that you, know, that you can feel the Holy Spirit's compulsion to do things. When, yeah. you're, when you are called to something, you are under, under an obligation to the Spirit is really a compulsion. Yeah. And I, th- I, think that's a, I think that's probably the right sense to take this. Yeah, his intensity is great. I love the way Chuck Swindoll frames it. He says, imagine how you would feel if you discover a cure for all types of cancer. How much of your time, energy, and money would you give to make this cure available to as many people as possible in your lifetime? Well, Paul's a man on a mission. His assignment to distribute the most precious commodity the world has ever received, the gospel, a cure formulated by God to be 100% effective against the terminal disease of sin. That is fantastic. Not just a kind of a great way to understand, like, especially right now as we're waiting on this vaccine, you know, for this pandemic, you know, that that Paul really sees is like, listen, you know, yeah, it's important, you know, to to save people's physical lives, but listen, this saves them for eternity. Like that, that gives you a sense of what was driving him. Well, a sense of what should drive us. Absolutely. Right? As, as driven as we as a culture are seeking this vaccine, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have something that cures a lot more than COVID, right? Yep. We, we have something that cures a lot more than COVID. Yeah. So if, if we're that pressed, right, if we'll take this kind of national energy, right, to, to mitigate a disease, what kind of energy should we as a church put into something that makes a difference for eternity, yeah. right? Yeah, and something that saves souls. Difference? Right. I mean, right, Jesus said, right, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Right? Be, be afraid of what kills the body and the soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so I, you know, yeah, you just feel the weight of Paul's calling there. And then, of course, the famous verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> Amen. And, and, and again, honor, shame, culture in that part of the world. So Paul's making a declaration. It's even kind of deeper than we understand, right? You know, I mean, he's saying, like, I, this is it. Listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then for it, it, in it is the righteousness of God.
God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this Amen. gospel reveals God's righteousness. And of course, you know, coming from a Jewish background, uh, the law, right? I can't, I can't keep God's righteousness perfectly. Well, obviously, Paul's going to unpack how, you know, the, Christ is our righteousness when, when we, we become his by, by grace through faith. And so uh, let's look at a couple outlines for the book of Romans now that we've kind of looked at an introduction. Uh, one simple one, I love it, uses all, all the S words as a good Baptist preacher should do, right? Sin. Condemnation, our, our need for God's righteousness, that's uh, chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, salvation, justification, the inspiration of God's righteousness, that's 321 through 521. Sanctification, the demonstration of God's righteousness, 61 through 839. Then sovereignty, all about Israel's past election, chapter 9. Present rejection, chapter 10. Future restoration, chapter 11. And then service. Christian duties uh, versus our chapters 12 and 13 and Christian freedoms or liberties uh, chapters 14 through 16. Um, when we preached through this several years ago and Brian, one of your good friends used to be our Chinese pastor, Dr. Yuhan Guo um, walked us through this text and I loved his approach. He's a brilliant scholar. Um, it really helped me to see kind of a gospel centered outline of Romans. So chapter one, not ashamed of the gospel as we mm. just noted chapter two. It's why everybody needs the gospel. Paul doesn't waste much time. Tell us about the message we're in, as we'll see in a moment. Chapter three, righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is what the gospel offers. Uh, chapter four, faith, what the gospel requires. Mm. Uh, chapter five, peace and hope, what the gospel produces in us. And chapter six, life in Christ, how the gospel transforms. Chapter seven, the struggle with sin, the tension of gospel living. I, 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 I do the things I don't want to do, right? And the right. things I don't want to do, I do. And so, you know, I, Paul's honesty is just so refreshing in yeah. that passage and so helpful yeah. to us. And then chapter eight is the summit of the gospel. Gospel. Uh, I think, as a matter of fact, we're going to spend an entire sermon series on Romans 8 uh, in 2021 uh, because it is so powerful. So that's new life in the Spirit. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, chapters 9 through 11 has to do with the gospel applied to Israel. So Paul kind of takes this digression, right? Um, what about God's chosen people? How do they fit and work with the new covenant? And then chapter 12 is the gospel applied. It's a supernatural life of surrender and sacrifice. Chapter 13, the gospel and government, uh, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago around the time of the election. Love fulfills the law. The gospel and lifestyles, chapter 14, we should build each other up. And then 15 and 16, this ministry of the gospel. And Paul uses that phrase, overflowing with hope, yeah. about that list of names that, that he Brian was talking about a few moments ago. Of, of course, a lot of you are familiar with the idea of the Romans Road, which I have highlighted, underlined in every Bible. I have an app that uses it because I love, honestly, Brian, when I'm having a gospel conversation and we reach that point to, I literally just put the app or the Bible in front of the person. I have them read these verses. And then I say, explain to me, help me understand, you know, what, what, what do you think that means? And let's talk about that because I love watching the word itself lead people right to salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen. So starting with, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Of course, Romans three twenty three all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God and eternal life is Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm. And Romans 10.9 and 10, well, what do I do with that? Well, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul goes on to quote the prophet who says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then a lot of people leave it there. I love to include verse 12 because I think that's important. Now what is a Christian? Well, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Amen. And so 
so it's that last half of the yep. book, I think, that often kind of unfortunately gets overlooked a little bit. It's the practical application, but some of the, the real riches are in there in those last few chapters. Well, in twelve one particularly, right? We get lots of quotes of twelve two. Yeah. Right. But but people tend to leave out twelve one of you present yourself a living sacrifice. Yeah. And that's an important Not many of us want to be sacrifices. Well, particularly a living sacrifice, right? I mean, at least sacrifice is over once, right? Yeah. A living sacrifice is a continuous right. thing. And living sacrifices like to try to crawl off the altar. They do, as I have a habit of doing from time to time. But, All of right? us. But, but, that's, but that's the richness of it, right, of understanding what, what, what is ongoing of our faith, right? And that living sacrifice is the ongoing component of how we serve the Lord and serve one another, yeah. right? Yeah, so good. Mm. So good. All right, so let's take a look at a couple of key passages. I mean, obviously, I was tempted to just like list the whole book, right? Uh, but 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 a, a couple of key things that I think are, are helpful to us again, just getting an insight into Paul that hopefully will spark your your reading and your uh, your your time in this book. Uh, in chapter one, as I mentioned, Paul doesn't waste any time after declaring the power of the gospel to save, getting into what we need to be saved from, right? And and, and if you just really want to look at the world we're in right now and what we're dealing with spend time in the back half of chapter one because he talks about the downward spiral of sin. And he basically reminds us what we need to be saved from. And sometimes, Brian, we theologically get this a little, little off, right? We all know, right? We're sinners and we, we need to be saved, but saved from what? Right. You know, Save, save from save from ourselves. Yeah, that's true. We'll make a mess of things. But but let's zoom out and let's look at this theologically. What do we need to be saved from? Paul's clear and clarifying here. God's wrath. Right. And we're like, wait a minute. We need to be saved from God. Yes. Right. Yep. Because God has wrath against sin. Right. And there has to be a punishment. Right. For those who are still in their sin, because a holy God cannot be in relationship with that that's not holy that which is not rightfully reconciled to him. And so it's clarifying to us. And so this is a great example of Paul's use of diatribe. What do we need to be saved from? Well, God's wrath, which is defined as his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone or to come to terms with it, and his just judgment upon it. And so Paul, it's just, I love what one commentator says. He outlines the horrifying downward spiral of our sin. Right, and it's both personal and cultural. That's the 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 staggering part of that that section of scripture. Yeah, is you can watch it in a person, and yep. you can watch it in a culture. Yeah, I mean, just and listen that, listen to these power. words. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is chapter one, verse twenty eight. Now, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I love that. Inventors of evil and disobedient to parents, back to back, right? Uh, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those that practice them speaking and talking about how the culture, right, applauds that. Misery loves company. Right. And so, I mean, it, it describes our, our current situation in our world with individuals and our culture so, so appropriately. And, and, and just, it's just devastating. And so the point that I want to make here is, is that we often talk about the gospel meaning good news. But, but the reality is a lot of people have not come to grips with what a bad situation they're in because of their sin. What a bad situation we've made of our world. Right. Well, they don't recognize what they need to be saved from. Yeah. And I've had people ask me that. 
you know, what do I need to be saved from? Yeah. Right. I'm a good person. I, I give stuff away. Yeah. You know, I'm obviously blessed because I drive this car or live in this zip code or this house. And so, so what are you saving me from again? Yeah. And it's like, let's, let's walk. And so what you, but that's where that relationship comes in, right? So you walk through that relationship and you see the brokenness that got there, the the, the thing, right? Because we all have that. Yeah. I mean, even those raised in the church, right? Where you go, well, I didn't have this while I didn't go off to the foreign land and right. But, but the self-righteousness in you, self-righteousness, I was raised in the church. I've got this side, right? Sure. Self-righteousness in me, right? The, 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 my, the judgment in me of others who didn't lead that Mm -hmm. kind of moralistic external life. Yeah. Right. Because it wasn't a moralistic internal life. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, Paul leaves no stone unturned. That's exactly right. right. And so it, it's definitely you feel. So if you really lean into this and study it, you, my point is, is you feel the weight. Right. Like you feel the heaviness of it. And I think that's so important uh, because I do think our, our world and unfortunately, even a lot of churches like to soft pedal sin. Right. And, and man, Paul just gloves off right, right. away. Like, boom, here we go. You know, and, and so it's important. And again, I, I like to let the word do the convicting. Yep. You know, I think we can all see ourselves. That list of things I just read, oh, yeah. right? We're, oh, oh yeah. that's me. Oh, oh that's me yeah. too. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, and so you realize what happens when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship what's created rather than the creator. I mean, we just go on and on. We have some church right up in here, right? So um, altar call, whole nine yards. And so, but but again, the point is, is here, we need to be no, we need to, to have a grasp with our head and our heart of what we need to be saved from, uh, to your point, Brian. So that's good. Um, after he unpacks that a little further, we come to what a lot of scholars call in chapter three, the most important paragraph ever written. And so I want to read that to you, of course. Uh, so that's chapter three, verses 21 through 26. And so after going on, right, and basically declaring, we call this Paul sings the blues, right? That no one is righteous, not even one. Right. So who has a chance, right? So, you know, none of us have a chance. These two words, but now, right. but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There it is. And that's why I said the Romans road, you want to double click on it because you really want to read this whole paragraph, right? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, we could spend hours on just the words Paul uses here. But, but you know, again, but now, right. lost in your sin, you had nothing. But he introduces two very important theological terms. One is justification. That is the legal sense of being made right with God. That is God looking at what Christ has done, despite what we deserve, because we're clearly guilty. Paul's right. laid that out for us, right? Looks at us, and because of what Jesus has done, said, because he vouches for you, you are not guilty. You are off the hook, right? And, and that is, if you just think about that courtroom scene, it, it's unimaginable. Right. Like that, that despite all of our sin, God would look at us and declare us not guilty, not because of a single right thing that we did, right. but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Right. And then the other term is propitiation. Yep. And it's got a long kind of history in, in kind of the Old Testament understanding of sacrifice. But, but basically what a propitiation is, is it's the idea of not only does it turn away the wrath of God, but it puts you in a favorable position with God. 
And so, again, a term that's so important to understand that God in his love and his mercy in Christ, not only, right, it says, I'm not going to destroy you, but says, instead, I'm going to bring you into my family, right? Like, I'm going to love you as one of my very own. It's it's just mind-boggling what we have in the gospel, what Paul is telling us we have here. Well, you walk into the courtroom expected to be found guilty. Yeah. And the judge and knowing invites, you're guilty. And knowing ju- you, know how you have right. no hope. Right. And then the judge invites you home to dinner and invites you to his family. Yeah. Right? That, that's yeah. literally what that's yeah. literally what this paragraph that's says. Exactly right. Right. You're walking in under condemnation knowing you deserve death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That they're gonna walk yep. you out and you're going to die. And instead the judge invites you home to be part of his family. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, what, you know, can you imagine the confusion in a courtroom if that, if that, that, and this is what's happening on an eternal scale. That's right. On an eternal scale. Yeah. So, oh. so again, to go from the depths of, you know, God's wrath against us to this, right. it's, I, I mean, I, I agree, right? It's probably the single most important paragraph ever written. And there is just an ocean of meaning if you want to do study behind each of those verses and terms there. Uh, chapter seven, I put in here as a key passage, the battle with sin. Because again, Paul does such a great job of, of of explaining this this thing that we tend to want to oversimplify and say law bad, sin good. Right. Uh, and so what he does is he points out, no, the law is not sin. Right. The law actually defines sin. That's verses seven and eight. Provokes sin, verse eight, and exposes my guilt. Right. Uh, God uses a. I love this sentence. God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing. Life. That's fabulous. And so Paul says, right, the law has its purpose to show that you can't keep it, to show that it can't save you. So don't don't throw the law out, right? right. The commands of God, right? You, you Those are important. But let that lead you to the gospel to right. recognize, I can't do this in my own strength. Right. I can't fulfill these perfectly. And so, uh, you know, John Stott, I believe it's the one he points out, you know, that so you have to decide where you land. Again, Paul being practical with his theology. Number one, you can be a legalist who is crushed by your inability to keep the law. Yep. That's who Paul was. You know, he was zealous for the law, but he, he recognized he couldn't keep it perfectly. But number two, you could become what we call an antinomian. That's a person who cheapens grace by turning liberty into license. Yeah. Oh, that's the God's forgiven me so I can do whatever I want. Right. Not <laughs> biblical. Right. And if that's your attitude, you, you need to check your understanding of the gospel. No doubt. Yeah, God, God loves to forgive and I love to sin. So what, right, so what a great agreement. Right. right. Paul uses certainly not. I think most translators say certainly, certainly which not. is borderline. If you, the Greek yeah. is borderline profane. Yes. It's kind of heck yes. no yes. with a little, little, a little fire, a little right. hot sauce on it. Right. Well, because you're messing again with the gospel. That's exactly right. You, you are, you, you are taking lightly what Christ died for. That's exactly you right. You know, and so that attitude is, is not the right attitude to have. Or, you know, Stott says number three, we can be what he calls, I love this, law loving free people right. in Christ. Praise God. And that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Right. right? Because right. When, you, when you operate in the world the way God designed it to work, you are truly free, right? Yeah. You will abide in my word, right? And you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Amen. 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 Oh, so good. And then we get to <laughs> Romans 8, right? And, yeah. and again, we're going to unpack this in a whole sermon series in 2021. But Brian, I will tell you that in pastoral counseling, I have counseled more men to go back and read and memorize Romans 8. I've had guys sitting in my office devastated by their sin, by their use of pornography, by their failing marriage, right? Uh, by them, uh, their career going kaput. And I've said, go back and read, memorize, live for a while in Romans chapter 8. 
Because if you are truly in Christ, yep. this is life in the Spirit. And so this is, is to me, you know, the, the, they call it the summit of, of, of the gospel, and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? That we can't be defeated because if God is for us, who can be against us? And ultimately, that beautiful passage at the end, there's no separation right. as well. So the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 affirms our salvation and our freedom. That's verses 1 through 4. He gives us a new mind, literally a new way of understanding the world, verses 5 through 8. He's our present power and our future hope. That's verses 9 through 13. And he affirms our new identity. That's verses 14 through 17. Uh, we, there's that famous verse in here, right? God works all things for the good of those who love him and are yep. called according to his purpose. And people get frustrated that that verse gets tossed around, and to some degree probably rightfully so, right? You need the context here. But the problem, the real problem is, is we define good by our terms. Right. Paul and the Bible defines good by whatever makes me more like Jesus. Right. So hear that verse again, right? So God works all things for the good, things that make me more like Jesus, even if they're hard or difficult or painful, right, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And even those are things you wouldn't pick. That's right. right? That's why he's a a lamp unto our feet, right, and a a light to our path, not Mm -hmm. a headlight down the road. Yeah. Right, because he will take you places you don't want to go because those places will make you look more like Jesus. And those may not be experiences we pick, and you've been through those. I've been through those. You know, anybody who's followed Jesus for any amount of time has been those. But you see, looking back on how Jesus has used those in your life and the life of others, and that's that good that he's calling us to. That's right. And that good, that new life in the Spirit is marked by the promises of God. That's verses 18 mm-hmm. through 25, the purposes of God for you verses 26 through 30, and the protection of God. And, I mean, you know, and that last last passage is just so poetic and powerful. For I am convinced, sure, that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can sing it as well with our soul. Amen and amen. Right? Man, just, yeah, altar call, let's go home. (laughs) All right. And so I put a little bit in there about living sacrifices. We hit on that a little bit earlier. Um, But chapter 12 really talks about how this supernatural mercy leads us to a supernatural life, but not as isolated individuals, right, as a supernatural body of believers that demonstrates a supernatural love to the world. That's who we are, right? That's what, when we're living sacrifices, that's what we become. So we should be eager to love, long for our promised rescue, eager to help the weak. We want to repay curses with blessings. We want to be diverse yet united in humility, and we want to overcome evil with good. So, so again, the, the whole theology, this chapters 1 through 11, Paul says, Therefore, right. This right? is what you do. Right? You offer yourself as a living sacrifice, yep. and he applies this. And then yep. chapter thirteen, I just included this because of our cultural moment, right, with the election and all God given authority. You know, we respond to and respect authority because chapter thirteen of Romans shows, shows us all authority is ordained and established by God. It reflects our convictions about God's system of authority that He's sovereign. Right. Mm-hmm. It shows ultimately that our primary motivation is love. God has put these structures into our world like government so we are free to love right. in the way that he showed us how to love. And it points to the ultimate authority in the ultimate kingdom. Amen. And so the way we respond to authority, which is no small issue in our cultural moment, even as Christians, and I'm very concerned that there are a lot of Christians who are like, my freedoms, my rights. So, yes, 
All right, God created you and he cares about you, but he's also put us under authority, the authority of his church, the authority of our homes, and the authority that he's ordained by government, you know, for ultimately the good of his people. It doesn't mean the governments aren't corrupt. It doesn't mean they're not tainted by sin. They are. But we've got to look back to the Bible for the principles by which we respond to authority because they were instituted by God. And we and we see that, and I agree with you. What what distresses me, right? Makes makes me. It doesn't make me angry. It makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Is that is that we see many in our Christian community responding in unbiblical ways. Right. Whereas if you would go back and root, look at the gospel, look yeah. at what we're yep. here to do, and then respond through that lens. Yeah. Respond through how Christ would do things. I think it changes your perspective on on how you see some of the because authorities. part of what makes people angry is is that you know well these things infringe on my comfort and my convenience, right? Which is not, not gospel focused, yeah. right. right? And so Paul is saying, because of the sake of the gospel, understand the way God ordained the world to function. Right? Are there times that governments again overstep their bounds? Yes. And so if we're called to you know to do something that disobeys a command of God, well, that's when we conscientiously object. Right. You know, as followers of Jesus. But in most circumstances, under most situations, we are called to be people under authority. Well, and Paul says, "I give up my rights." Right over in Corinthians, the letter to Corinthians, he says, "I'll give up my rights." Yeah. Right for the sake of the gospel. Yep. He said these aren't these and so we you know the Bible doesn't have us proclaiming our rights and we've said this many times. The Bible has lists out our responsibilities. Yeah. Our responsibilities to Christ and our responsibilities to each other. Yeah. And I think when you focus there it gives a very Amen. different perspective on how you operate in the world. That's right. That's right. I love that Brian. Yeah. Yeah. The the emphasis in the New Testament is on our responsibilities again out of overflowing hearts for what Christ has done for us. Right. When we look at that then we have to say we want to live the way he has called us to live. Well, it's back to Paul's compulsion, right? That should compel us, yeah, right? Word. Jesus' sacrifice for us should compel us to be living sacrifices, yeah. right? Just like Paul. Yeah. Paul was under obligation. We too yeah. are under obligation. Yeah, because Paul understood for the Roman church, right? Their witness was at stake. Right. I mean, right. you know, how they were going to be able to function. And as I mentioned last Sunday, you know, what, what the Roman empire could not stop was people who recognized, right, that they were under authority and yet they moved the gospel forward one act of love and by sharing the gospel, you know, one person at a time. And gee, does that sound familiar? Yeah, right? Right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, good stuff. All right, so so what, <laughs> as we wrap up, the power of the gospel in the Roman changes lives in history. I love yeah. this, you know, me, again, being a historian, uh, as I mentioned earlier, people who have really been transformed by the Holy Spirit working through the words of this book uh, have, have impacted the world from origin of Alexandria in the third century to Barnhouse of Philadelphia in the 20th, a pastor who preached, get this, 140 Sundays straight from the letter to the Romans. Countless theologians will pin countless pages of exposition and meditation from this apostle's magnum opus. Augustine will find the seed plot of his faith in this letter. This document will spark a revolution in the heart of a monk named Martin Luther who will reintroduce to the world the truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It will ignite the mind of Jonathan Edwards, strangely warm the heart of John Wesley, fuel the revival fire of first George Whitfield, and then in our own time, Billy Graham. All of these, right, influenced by Romans. Martin Luther in particular, that end of the passage of, of, of Romans that we read, Romans 1, 17, for him, he was a frustrated monk trying to earn his way into right standing with God, could not do it until finally the truth of that washed over him, right, that the righteous will live by faith alone. 
And so he said it this way. He said, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, right? Because he couldn't keep it. Now it became to me an expressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul's became to me a gateway into heaven. Wow. And so again, the reformation, which changed the Western world, right? Was launched by what? One verse of scripture that transformed a man, right? And so amazing. So now what? Well, as the theologians have said, what's good for Paul is good for all. So as we've mentioned, here's our calling, Brian, as you mentioned earlier, this should change us, right? Yeah. Number one, I'm under obligation. Yeah. I'm, I'm compelled, like Paul, those of us who have been set free in Christ have an obligation to share this gospel, Amen. the gift of eternal Amen. life. Number two, I'm eager, right? Yeah. It should motivate us to action. It should give a purpose and meaning and direction to our life. That if you are a believer in Christ, there's a reason that God doesn't just pluck you and send you on to heaven when you become a Christian. He leaves you here because you have the opportunity to tell somebody about him and about this gospel. That's right. And then finally, of course, I'm not ashamed. No matter what comes, right, we're going to stake our lives on the truth of God's grace, and we're going to stand firm in that. Amen. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Amen. Christ. So, all right, we ready for uh, seven verses of just as I am? Sure. Oh, sure. Man. We can go till somebody comes till somebody comes to the door. Yeah, but seriously, <laughs> but seriously, you know, if if you are listening to this and you're convicted, you know, that you need to know this gospel, that you need to know Jesus uh, in the way that Paul lays it out in his word, then please reach out to us, info at stationhillchurch.com, text us, Station Hill 623-623, and one of us will follow up with you immediately. So with that, Brian, will you pray for us and close us out today? Absolutely. Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, thankful for for this writing through through Paul, and this, this clear understanding, this alignment of our lives to your grace. And so, Father, let us walk from here, those of us that know you, with a better understanding, more, I love it, more sure right, of who you are and how you love us. And let us be called to action under obligation of the Spirit, compelled to share this grace with everyone we see. Mm-hmm. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Mm-hmm. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brian.